Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as the pastor and a professor and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today I'm going to be passing the baton to Aaron as he interviews a Christian politician and discusses Christians in politics. So take it away, Aaron. All right. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a change of role for me. I'm the interviewer and uh, I have as my illustrious guest, Mr. Derek Sloan, who many of my listeners will know. He has served as a member of parliament federally in our country and is currently running for premier of Ontario as a leader of the new, newly, newly minted Ontario party. So one of the subjects that I'm always interested in as a Christian thinker is, is helping Christians to think about how, how they can actually serve Christ in the public square. I think a lot of people know where they can serve in their local churches, but they're not always sure. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian thinker, influencer in education or in law or in medicine or in politics? And I've thought a lot about this, and I want to help Christians to try to bring the values of Christ's kingdom to bear in all of life. So the idea is we're not just waiting for heaven. We're trying to make an influence now. We're trying to represent Christ right now. And so I'd like to interview Derek today, and we're super happy to have him on our show as we discuss one of those realms, which is Christians in politics. So Derek, thanks for joining the Leadership Now podcast today. We're, we're delighted to have you. Really glad to be here, Aaron. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, so I, I want to start off by um, I think I think many of my listeners are probably somewhat aware of your story over the past couple of years. You were a member of Parliament. You ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party, etc. But perhaps they don't really know like why did you decide as a Christian to enter into politics in the first place, and and what were some of the things that sort of on ramped you into this. Uh, you know, area of life and ministry. Right. Well, I had always, uh, from a very young age, wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, I uh, I did some things uh, after undergraduate, uh, owned, uh, worked in a couple of businesses, owned my own business, got married. But I really still felt that call to go back to uh, law school. And so I did go back in my late 20s. And um, I realized that things had changed quite a bit from when I was in uh, school before. Uh, political correctness, which of course has always been around, was uh, you know at a new uh, height of fury. Um, and I realized that we were being trained to be primarily political activists as opposed to lawyers. Um, one of the callings I felt uh, in going to law school was to actually fight for religious liberty. And uh, I'm blessed to know uh, most of the main players that fight for, for religious freedom here in Canada uh, from a legal perspective. And um, I was actually able to be involved uh, on the uh, uh, on the side of an intervener. So an intervener is somebody who uh, uh, has a stake in a case, not as a party, but just generally a stake in the outcome. So for the Trinity Western University uh, Law School uh, in BC, that they tried to have a law school, they had a community covenant that they've had for decades that basically says a lot of nice things. But the one thing that people don't like is they, they say that uh, sex is to be reserved uh, for marriage and they define right. marriage as be being between a man and a woman. So this particular school 
um, actually had a legal issue before they they tried to open a, le- a teacher's college. They were denied by the province of BC to be able to do that. They took that all the way up to the Supreme Court and they won that case. That was in 2001. So they tried to have a law school a little bit later, a little over a decade later. And I was involved as uh, uh, working with an intervener to to uh, uh, on that case. So I had some firsthand experience in, in preparing and, and fighting uh, on that. Uh, the particular case I was involved in, we actually did win at the entry level court in BC. But when that case got up to the Supreme Court, they lost. Okay. And if you if you know anything about law, most people have have heard the term precedent, where it's kind of like you know if the court decides something on Monday, you expect them to decide the same thing on Tuesday if the facts are the same. And so this particular case, uh, you know, it was it was a little over a decade later, but it was decided against Trinity Western. And so, um, you know, going through school, seeing all the, uh, you know, having worked on that case, seeing all the, you know, activism that was going on, it just showed me that basically uh, even the rule of law is malleable in the hands of, you know, our activist judges. Mm. And I realized that, you know, the people I was in school with, they would be on the benches, you know, 20 years down the road. And most of them, you would think that lawyers, you know, might not like, you know, conservative values, but at the very least, you would think they would fight for the freedom to have them. And yet many of my, most of my classmates were against the right of Trinity Western to even exist uh, with, you know, it's a private school. They have, you know, traditional beliefs that Christians have held for 2000 years. So my uh, time at school was a, was an eye opening in, in terms of seeing the caliber of the lawyers that were being released and seeing the bias in the education that was really focused on teaching them to, uh, you know, use the charter as a as a, a legal tool to make society into you know kind of the left wing utopia that they're uh, that they were hoping for. So, I uh, you know over a period of several years, I began to kind of get involved in politics, just sort of at a local sort of club level, uh, you know, at university and so on. And then after that, I had the opportunity to actually run in a nomination where I was living for the Conservative Party. All right. So I think that's uh, pretty fascinating because in many respects, that's why we do this podcast. It's not just looking for something to do on a Thursday afternoon. We see very clearly that there are there is a massive ideological and dare I say spiritual war being fought in all spheres and realms of life. And we want to speak truth into those issues. So I want, I want to just chat with you a little bit about Values. So obviously Western nations, which we used to call Christendom, Christians who nations who had a Christian basis to their to their law, to their politics, to their family values and whatnot. Obviously, these Western nations, including Canada and the United States, are are largely founded on Christian values and initiatives, which have led to the establishment of Christianized institutions. So for example, historically universities, hospitals, Obviously, legal structures and political establishments were very much forged in a milieu of Christianity. And what's fascinating about that is that's why people from non-Christian nations have often wanted to move to to nations like Canada because we valued individual soul liberty and we had a democratic system of government and people had freedom to worship and whatnot. Now, we know that many of these um, historic freedoms and values have been lost or are under attack. So as a man who served for many years in politics, what would you say are some of the key values or historic notions 
that you've witnessed come under the greatest amount of attack, especially in, in the Canadian context? What are the things that, peep, that, that those that don't hold to our worldview seem to be attacking the most? Well, there is a general assault on sort of our history and, and uh, you know, our traditional values. I think probably one of the biggest things that, that's gone by the wayside is a sense of accountability. And, you know, in my own personal life, and I think, you know, more so, uh, you know, say 50, 60 years ago, politicians had a sense of accountability, perhaps to God, perhaps to the community. Um, there was a sense that, you know, their, uh, their actions would, be, would have to be accounted for. And what I'm seeing a lot today in politics is, you know, actions taken, taken by the major parties that are prefaced only on winning. So whatever the right thing to do is, that doesn't mean much to, to the parties. I mean, if, you know, if they can do the right thing at the same time, great. But it's, it, you know, what they do is prefaced on winning whatever they think they, you know, they can win on. And I think it's really, uh, you know, taking us down a, a turn for the worse in terms of, uh, you know, the motivations behind uh, what, why the major parties do what they do. Yeah, well, that is, that's an interesting comment as well, because then you fall into pragmatism, right? As a party, and a lot of parties are tempted to do that. They Their entire platform is not based upon values or principles. It's based upon what's going to get us into power. And I think it's almost like, a, you know, lick your finger, stick in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. And that's why one of the things I've noticed is that when I look at the platforms, whether it's the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the NDP Party, they're not really that much different. And even if there's some differences there in terms of fiscal policy, when they get into power, they kind of all act the same. And the liberals generally take our country to the left or our province to the left. And then maybe the cons get in, they tap the brake a little bit. And then next election, take it to the left, then tap the brakes. But overall, the trajectory of our country is, is really moving left, 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 left. And people like myself and, and others of similar worldview have grown quite you know, frustrated with the the establishment parties. And so we're delighted to have, you know, parties like yours and people like yours. What, what would be some of the, you, you mentioned that many governments preface their decisions as to what they're going to stand for, not stand for on winning. What would be some of the key areas in our country, like very practical things where you've seen that, that show the most obviously? Well, in my, in my experience, in the last couple of years, I know that a, that a large chunk of the conservative federal conservative caucus uh, was very uh, concerned about the blanket business lockdowns. They were certainly concerned about vaccine mandates, and a, and a smaller portion of them was was very concerned about vaccine safety. And yet, none of these issues were uh, uh, targeted in any significant way by the conservative party because they were afraid that you know basically the public wasn't ready to handle it or or that it would you know go against them in the polls, right. but. You know, when you're going through a crisis, when you're going through a situation where people want to hear different sides of things, where they need to need to hear the right answers, they need people in, in parliament that are that are going to stick up for them. Yeah. And unfortunately, we we didn't see that. You know, there was crucial moments during during this where the conversation could have been switched. And unfortunately, the opposition parties, uh, you know, never took that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that as well. I was talking to a federal MP and he's sort of indicating, well, I'm, I'm sort of on your side. I'm not really in favor of lockdowns, but that was a private conversation in public. He was actually woefully silent or actually was siding with, you know, government decisions. So that, that again has been frustrating for, for a lot of people who've opposed, you know, lockdowns and a lot of these health mandates like, like we have here. 
What, what would you say to a Christian? One of the things I hear people say on occasion as I speak to quote unquote political issues, which I think are largely ideological or theological. One of the things I hear Christians say is, look, uh, why don't we just pray, preach the word, do church, stay out of politics. That's sort of a realm for secular thinkers, either because it's just not our job as Christians or it's point politics is pointless. What would you say to the Christian that is disengaged from the political process? Well, you know, I couldn't disagree more. And, you know, I, I understand that. I understand that, uh, that, you know, that under that opinion, because, you know, I come from a conservative church that kind of, you know, more or less thinks along the same lines, you know, that there's a lot of corruption in politics and we'd be better served to kind of keep our hands clean and, you know, just work for the kingdom of God. But, you know, the fact is we've been, we've been called to be salt and light uh, wherever we are and in all aspects of society. And, you know, beyond that, if, if you're not willing to engage with politics, it doesn't matter because politics is coming for you. Good and that's point. what I realized Good when I was in school. They are coming for you. They don't like you. Like, so if we cede territory to the people that, you know, the left-wing people, their religion is politics. That's all they care about. Mm-hmm. And they are coming for you. They do not like you. They hate your beliefs. And they want to make your beliefs illegal. They want to punish you. And they don't want you to have any ability to have any, you know, participate in the in the workplace or anything else uh, without denouncing your beliefs. That's their ultimate goal. We're seeing, you know, Trudeau move towards making charitable status contingent on having the right beliefs. Uh, numerous, numerous things of this nature. Social media censorship. They care about you and they are coming for you. So you can sit there and pray or you can sit there and pray and do something about it. And and I've chosen to do the latter. Yeah. One of the things we said during our uh, lockdowns and our own church's resistance to this is, you know, you might, you might not want to get in politics, but politics is getting involved in the church. You know, and you can unilaterally shut down churches without conversation, charge pastors more money for opening their church than you do to some sort of you know, creepy criminals. I mean, that's a, a major problem in our in our culture. By the way, just out of curiosity, if if we rewound the clock, rewound the clock two years, and you know, you you were the premier of Ontario, and all of a sudden we heard about this virus that had landed in our province. Just just kind of in in point form, not not getting into the weeds. But if you had been the premier two years ago, what would you have done differently? Well, it's interesting because uh, I was I was talking about this from from the very beginning. So it's more than just a kind of you know hindsight is twenty twenty thing. I was actually uh, giving recommendations during this time, and we knew very early on that uh, you know the elderly and and immunocompromised were more far more affected from COVID than than normal healthy people, and so we obviously should have done targeted measures that really you know bolstered uh, uh, the the vulnerable, but. Normal people, normal healthy people should should have been able to carry on with life as they chose to do it. I think there should have been encouragement from the government for those who were sick and symptomatic to stay home. I think that there should there's a lot of things could have been done in our nursing homes. Another thing that we could have done and didn't, there were, uh, you know, great indications of, um, you know, simple uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, treatments along with various vitamins and 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 uh, minerals that bolstered people's defenses against COVID. So uh, you know there's there's a there's a slew of vitamins. You know vitamin D is one that I mentioned in the House of Commons that again was was recommended in other countries is preventative against respiratory illness. There's uh, drugs like ivermectin, uh, budesonide, 
uh, erythromycin. Diff there's different protocols that different doctors have used, cheap available pharmaceuticals that really do help keep people out of the hospital. You know, we put our head in the sand over that. We, we weren't even trying these things. Um, literally, people would go to the hospital and they would say, you know what, come back when you're worse. That's literally what they were saying. You know, come back when you need to be put on a ventilator. We were doing nothing for these people. And we weren't even doing something simple like recommending, you know, vitamin D and some of these other, uh, you know, natural things that could that could help increase your chances of fighting this. Sure. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's an interesting observation that we live in a, a culture that uh, doesn't blink an eye against alcohol abuse, uh, smoking tobacco, promotes cannabis, has no problem with obesity, processed foods, locking people at home so they can't even go out for a run. But then we have this whole thing of, well, we got to protect the hospital system and we, we want to make sure we don't go too hard on the doctors and nurses. They have a, there doesn't seem, to, with a lack of a Christian worldview, you eventually lose focus on every area of life. And the Bible has a lot to say about the stewardship of your body, your body's a temple, what you take into it matters. Obviously, sobriety is is biblical. But I, I thought it was, uh, you know, super ironic and hilarious when during one of these lockdowns, we had our premier up there helping us to learn how to make cheesecake, you know, which it's just a, a small, a microcosm, a glimpse into the mindset of culture that fixated on stopping this virus, but didn't, didn't uh, avail itself of some of the most basic historical um, resources that we have to, to stay healthy. Like I, I, I too was a big proponent of a targeted protection plan of, you know, healthy eating of healthy living and then moving forward and dealing with the issues as they come. I do, however, want to spend a little bit of time on some of the, the issues that uh, I know are near and dear to your heart and that are part of the, the platform of your, your uh, provincial party. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about some of these issues. And I know not all these are, are provincial issues, okay? So I know like abortion, medical assistance and dying, that's, that's more of a federal issue. But people are concerned about the character of their leaders. And I know pe many people have been actually attracted to you, Derek, to your credit, because you're a bold Christian in public, and I want to commend you for that. So, but just to bring absolute crystal clarity to, to some of these issues, because there's, you know, people spread rumors. Where do you, for example, as a Christian stand on what we would historically call the pro-life issues, abortion, medical assistance, and dying? In particular, yeah, yeah. So I'm a pro-life uh, politician. I've been very, very open and clear about that. Um, you know, I was just at the March for Life in Ottawa a few weeks ago, and I've uh, been a regular at events like those. Um, I believe that you know, when when we talk about conservatism in this country, um, there can't be any ambiguity on this issue. There can be all kinds of uh, you know discussion about how we promote a culture of life. I think that you know. Uh, that issue is wide open, and uh, and there there can be all kinds of conversations. But you know the basic the basic idea uh, that you know abortion is neutral or you know positive or something like this. Our general approach as conservatives uh, must be: it is better to have fewer abortions rather than more. It's a it's a very simple concept that you know I watch the conservative leadership race and and I see most of the candidates, not all of them tripping over each other to talk about how pro-abortion they are. It's, it's an issue which, you know, granted, life is complicated. We, we, we understand that people are put in positions where they, where they, you know, maybe don't want to make certain decisions and they do. I'm not taking away from the complexity of life, but the fact is, is that life is valuable 
and it must be supported and protected uh, at every phase. Now, exactly how we go about, you know, promoting this, there's very, there's, there's a hundred different ways and a hundred other ways we haven't even thought of to do that. And I think that conversation is a good one to have, but, you know, the support for life, the promotion of life is something that, you know, should be a given in, uh, in a conservative worldview. And, you know, in the United States, it pretty much is these days. Right. Just as a sidebar, what are your thoughts on uh, government using taxpayers' funds to, you know, perform abortions, perform medical assistance and dying uh, procedures? Um, I mean, we could get into like the whole transgender. I think a lot of people who are true conservatives are frustrated that they're forced to pay taxes that are used directly for immoral purposes. Um, can you speak to those issues? Well, pregnancy is not an illness. It's not a disease that needs a cure. Um, it is true in this country that we, we do spend money on, on all of those things that you stated. Um, my personal belief, again, is that life needs to be protected. We need to promote a culture of life. We need to encourage people to choose other options, you know, adoption, um, things like this. Uh, there's various ways, again, to approach this. And, you know, our party... Uh, at the provincial level, of course, we don't have control over the legality of any of those things. Right. Um, but we do ha- we do have control over the provision of certain services. And when it comes to, for example, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, gender modification, so whether that's uh, through drugs or surgery, we would not permit that uh, for minors in this province. That's something that we that we do have control over. We don't believe there's many examples of young people. There's a, a woman in Britain there who sued the government because she transitioned when she was 16. She had a double mastectomy. A few years later, she was like, what the heck did I do? It didn't solve any of my problems. I, you know, I, I wasn't given, you know, the uh, full informed consent and she won on that. So we, you know, we don't want to have more of those kind of, you know, Kira Bells is the name of this lady in, in Ontario. So that is one thing for sure that we would not be permitting in Ontario. Yeah, that'd be interesting if uh, down the road we had all these people that took advantage of the gender transition surgery actually suing the province for paying for it because they they then regret the decisions that they make. That'd be a fascinating phenomenon. Well, I think we will. That's that's the whole point. I mean, uh, you know, we're gonna we're 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 at the tipping point. I think of a whole onslaught of uh, of of legal cases against you know the government or doctors uh, who have performed these things by adults who regret having, you know, taken puberty blockers to the point of, you know, sterility for the rest of their life or, you know, undergoing surgical changes that are, are irreversible. Uh, so absolutely, I think we're, we're just at the, at the beginning of seeing a tsunami of regret on that issue. I've also heard you speak uh, critically of uh, critical race theory, especially in uh, public school curriculum. Do you want to comment on that? Maybe help our audience to understand what critical race theory is and how, uh, how you've sort of processed that issue? Sure. So, so critical race theory is basically, um, you know, a series of a series of ideas that basically posits that the the uh, the the number one determining factor of kind of everything in life is is either oppression or being oppressed, and they posit that the um, you know the cause of all that is basically racism. So. Um, you know, if you're, if you, if, if you have a lighter skin color, you're more privileged. If you have a darker skin color, you're more oppressed. And they actively want to, um, you know, try to, to seek to, uh, uh, right the balance of this, of this racism that they see by basically actively, uh, advantaging people who are oppressed in their view and actively sort of, 
uh, uh, handicapping or, 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 or taking away from those who are, who are, or oppressing in their view. And it's basically comes down to skin color. And then there's also like, you know, sub variants of it where, you know, if you're straight and white and male, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're more oppressive than someone who's, you know, uh, uh, the opposite, you know, black and lesbian or whatever the case may be. There's a whole, there's a bizarre kind of hierarchy of sort of oppression and, and oppress, and oppressor. And it is not based on any actual oppression that's going on. It has to do, you know, basically on how you look and what your gender is and things like this. So, uh, you know, we're against that. We, we believe that's ideological, uh, you know, uh, brainwashing that's going on. They're teaching this kind of thing in our school system. And it also, you know, turns into things like, you know, Canada is a fundamental, fundamentally racist country. Right. Ontario yeah. is a fundamentally irredeemably racist place. So it's kind of, um, you know, again, bereft of any historical, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, nuance. And again, it's basically saying that if someone who looked like you did something, you know, 200 years ago that was wrong, you carry that guilt today. And and there's a lot of different beliefs in that theory that are basically just, just wrong. So basically what you're saying is you're a white supremacist and a racist. <laughs> By being white, you're, you, you are racist, effectively, yeah. is what they're saying. And you need to acknowledge that and, and do all kinds of, you know, different penance to, to atone for it. Now, this is already present tense being taught in our Ontario public schools. We, we hear this from kids and students all the time. Uh, last election, last provincial election, the big deal was the uh, win sex, radical sex ed agenda, which uh, our current premier was probably his main conservative plank. He was going to overturn and dispense with the previous premier, Kathleen Wynne's radical sex ed agenda. He's essentially done nothing uh, to to deal with that. What do you think needs to happen to our public school educational system in order to put conservative people at ease? How would you deal with the um, the radical sex ed agenda and also the CRT, which is snuck into almost every subject matter? Sure. Well, in terms of critical race theory, we would not allow that to be taught in our schools. So we have a you know some basic ideas we would not permit to be taught. Uh, you know this this teaching that someone is innately oppressed or innately oppressive. This idea that you're you you are uh, uh, guilty of things that other people of your gender or skin tone have done. Um, you know, this idea that, you know, our country is irredeemably and fundamentally racist. These kinds of things we would not permit. And we would also not permit, you know, the subjective indoctrination of, of subjective, you know, sexual values. So, for example, uh, gender, gender ideology, uh, age inappropriate sex education, uh, you know, these kinds of things we would just not permit to be taught in our, in our uh, public school system. And frankly, uh, you know, when it comes down to, uh, and, you know, giving parents the option and the, and, and the notice of the types of things that are being taught so that they could, you know, be, come along with the child in, in that experience and, and, you know, provide additional instruction or, or talking about it. Yeah, these are good. Yeah, we appreciate your voice in this matter. By the way, a couple of quick questions people have often asked me. The first is like, why a little while ago, I know you were seeking to form a federal party, True North, I believe. And, uh, Correct, yeah. And then you you ran out west, and you were running in a riding out there. Why did you do that? Some people, I think, thought that was a good idea. Other people were a little bit put off by it. And uh, 
why'd you do that? And secondly, I'll, I'll ask you two questions at once. What, what is your relationship like with the other freedom parties? Obviously, the Ontario party has been around for a while, but it's sort of been revived under your leadership. There's a couple other freedom-minded parties. Why'd you run out west? Could you maybe answer that for some of our critical listeners? And what's the relationship like between the, the Ontario party and the other freedom parties? And why aren't they together? Sure. So you're right. We did we did put in paperwork for uh, the True North Party of Canada. It is actually now finally approved. We waited many many months for that. It was approved in February of this year. Um, we had we had hoped and, and expected it to be approved uh, before the last election. And so during the summer months, uh, we made the decision to tour around Canada promoting freedom issues. We did an extensive tour in Alberta. We wanted to run strong candidates in the West and in the East, have a leg on both sides of the country. Um, unfortunately, our party was not approved in time for that election. And so we ran only two candidates. We ran my wife in, in the riding that I used to hold and then myself in an anchor seat in Alberta. Um, when it comes to uh, you know, the decision process, we, had the, we basically had the choice of staying at home only in my riding or continuing to advocate on the freedom files. So to have, and you have to remember that when I was ejected from the conservative party, I had my membership stripped from me. Uh, they took $75,000 that I'd raised in, in, our, in our local EDA and they just transferred it over to the other candidate. Oh, wow. So there was a lot of kind of animosity in, in my, in my, and division in my home riding just with all the, the turmoil with the conservative party, not necessarily against me, but it, but it was, you know, uh, it would have been a situation that I would have had to spend every single day in my riding uh, to be able to fight there effectively. And we we basically, of course, we know when the election was now. We didn't know exactly when it was going to be. So we didn't want to be sort of uh, tied just uh, uh, just to the riding uh, when there were so many, um, you know, freedom issues to be to be talking about. So if you guys remember, I was I was attending different rallies and so on, promoting freedom values. Yep. And we wanted to make sure that we we could continue to advocate on a national level. And so um, making the decision to run in my home riding, which of course was a very difficult one. I love my riding. I love the people there. And we really did. Uh, we did not want to have to make that decision. But again, it was a choice between basically staying entirely at home and staying silent uh, uh, on these issues that that mattered. Not that I couldn't talk about them, but I couldn't advocate for them. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we were we were drawing thousands of people uh, when we were touring and doing this. But you know, people who people who um, you know wanted a Derek Sloan candidate to vote for in my riding, they had one in the in the in the person of my wife who shares the same values as me, has the same you know freedom credentials as I do. So uh, it was a tough decision that we made, uh, and uh, and frankly, um, you know, I, I don't. Uh, I don't look back on, on things and, and, you know, uh, shoulda, coulda, woulda. We made that decision with the best information that we had. We had a great time in Alberta, made a lot of friends. And frankly, we're going to continue advocating for change on the federal level. And, uh, you know, my influence across the country is, is much greater than it would have been um, had I not uh, made that decision. Right. Yeah. And to that second point, and maybe to speak to, obviously, there's a lot of freedom-minded people and there's a few different newer parties that have stepped up. So... A lot of folks have asked me, like, oh, why can't we get all these parties together? So could you just speak to that point? Yeah. So we have actually spent time uh, spent time reaching out to Randy Hillier's team, uh, uh, several weeks, actually, of, uh, you know, fairly productive discussions with that uh, team early on this year. 
eventually Randy Hillier decided not to be involved, you know, be involved in politics this time around. Um, we, we tried on multiple occasions to reach out to New Blue, and we were denied uh, any meetings whatsoever. And in fact, uh, not only did they deny us the meetings, they uh, upped their uh, uh, rhetoric, their, their accusations, their extremely uh, negative and false accusations about multiple other freedom fighters in this province. And they absolutely refused to meet with us. For anybody who's unclear on how that went down, we have a section on our website called Unity. If you go there, you can see the public uh, information that we have put out alongside the public information that New Blue has put out on this issue. And I think it will become very clear uh, as to what happened in this situation. So for anyone who's interested in that, uh, go to our website, take a look at that. Uh, but, you know, generally, I think it's very clear that we've been, you know, positive and upfront in terms of what we're doing. And there have been some very reckless and slanderous attacks on some other people uh, by some some of the leaders of the other parties. Right. No, that's good. That's helpful because I know a lot of people are uh, asking that question. And of course, over the last couple of years, I've got to know really all of these people. I've spent time with all the the leaders of these parties and various other politicians. And uh, when you when you get to know people, you know you you get a, get to know a little bit more of their heart, their character, their their true opinions, their story, their background, and it does affect where you tend to throw your your support but for the general public you know many of them are just kind of looking at the platform right so let's talk a little bit about your platform uh tell us a bit about the ontario party like how did you get involved in it and what's your your basic uh basic platform as a provincial party here in in this province sure so the ontario party has been around since 2018 they ran some candidates in the last election and I took over leadership of the party uh, at the latter part of uh, last year. Our, to crystallize our, our, uh, our um, campaign, our platform down into, into three easy things to remember. We're fighting for freedom, faith, and family. And that means, uh, you know, the freedom to, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, the freedom to choose what kind of medical procedures you, you need to undergo. Uh, when it comes to family, that means making sure parents are, are in control over educating their children, not the state, that parents have authority over what kind of medical procedures their kids have to undergo. Um, you know, that families can afford a home to settle down and raise a family. Um, when it comes to faith, we're talking about the freedom to have a belief, the freedom to gather, the freedom to express your beliefs in public, you know, in, on social media. This is the gist, I think, of what has made Canada great. And we want to make sure that we... Uh, uh, you know, fight for these things that uh, that are under attack right now in, in this province. All right. Hey, let's talk a little bit about housing because I know a lot of young people, I know in our church and in our circles of relationship, we have tons and tons of young people that are sort of entering into that phase of life. They finish school, they're in their careers, they're starting to save up a down payment. One of the challenges is they've told me, you know, we can't save up a down payment fast enough because as we're, you know, if we're saving up a down payment for a $300,000 house, when we get it, suddenly it's worth four. And then we save up for four, suddenly it's worth five. And I think they said something about the average price of housing in Ontario might even be closer to 700000 So what's your message to young people? I mean, housing isn't be all and end all of life, but we are physical beings. We live in a physical world. We need money. We need a place to stay. People obviously want to build a legacy for their children and grandchildren. What is your message to young people about the housing crisis that we're currently seeing uh, really across the Western world, but especially in Canada? Yeah. 
Well, I believe that the the in terms of last month's sales, the average the average price of a home in Canada or Ontario, I forget which, but it was it was north of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And when you look at a city like Toronto and you're looking to get a detached home, you're well north of a million dollars. Um, this has been a problem in the making now for quite some time, and uh, we need to make sure we address it directly. Um, the major feature of our plan is that we're going to be banning any foreign investment into real estate or farmland. Um, we don't even have the data exactly to know exactly the extent of foreign ownership and foreign investment in our real estate here, but it's significant. Um, there was some data that, that suggested that between 5 to 10% of every new build uh, condo in Toronto or Vancouver was purchased by a non-Canadian, uh, meaning someone who's not working here, not living here. Um, and of course, there's various ways, of, you know, to have corporate ownership, beneficial ownership uh, that, you know, again, we have no idea the extent of, of foreign ownership when it comes to the full, full extent of it. So that's something that we're going to just completely put a stop to. Uh, there's lots of stories of, you know, a wealthy person from Middle East or China, you know, buying 30 condos, buying 40 condos. We're going to make sure that, uh, you know, only people who are living and working in Canada uh, are going to be able to buy houses. We want to make sure we address money laundering that's going into our housing market. That's a significant issue as well. There are some red tape issues, of course, to deal with um, on, you know, the municipal side and other zoning sides. But, you know, there was a, a great graph put out by the chief economist at BMO uh, that really, in my view, uh, puts an end to this idea that it's all about supply. It's not about supply. It's primarily about demand. And, uh, you know, this graph showed that Canada is kind of right in the middle when it, when it comes to housing supply in the G8 countries. And, uh, you know, we're, we're right around the, the median uh, uh, mark there. So supply to increase is a great is a great thing. I'm not against it, but we need to deal with demand. Another part of demand is immigration. We get a lot of people into Ontario every year uh, due to federal immigration policies. Immigration is a joint, it can be a joint responsibility between provinces and the feds, according to the constitution. Quebec has had significant control over immigration for, for a long time. And we want to, we want to ask for that. We want to have the same control here in Ontario over our immigration. That's another driver. Uh, for every home sold in the GTA, one out of two of those sales comes from someone whose uh, country of origin is not Canada. Again, I'm not against these people. If I was them, I'd be trying to buy a house too. It, it, you know, it, it makes sense that a lot of people want to come to Canada, but we want to make sure that the numbers we're allowing in are not straining our, 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 our you know, resources, our, our healthcare system, our housing supply, things like this. So between those three things, I think we can really address the crisis. And I think it's the most robust plan that I'm aware of in this country. Right on. Well, hey, I know you got to get going, but I'm going to ask you one final question. If uh, if there's Christian people out there that are thinking to themselves, you know what, maybe maybe God is calling me to run for office, um, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal in the next election or even future elections, what would be your top one, two, three pieces of advice to them to prepare themselves for holding office in our country and also living up to their Christian values? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's I think it's critical that good people get into politics, and I think the more good people we have in politics, the better. I think if someone is feeling called in that direction, they need to they need to start making friends and connections with other people of like mind. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I believe the Ontario Party is an example of of people with like mind. Um, but if you know anybody in your area, connect with them. You know, you can you, even if your aspirations are say municipal. 
uh, you know, connect with your local, uh, say, Ontario Party candidate, or if there's another party that you like, connect with them, make friends, talk about making, you know, uh, uh, doing things beyond just, you know, provincial politics, talk about doing, you know, municipal, federal politics. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, get their feet wet simply by volunteering for a candidate. So if somebody wants to volunteer, for example, for an Ontario Party candidate, they can go to our website, they can sign up to volunteer. That, you know, you'll get to meet people, you'll get to talk about things. That's a good way to get your feet wet. Okay, right on. Well, hey, Derek, good to see you once again. Uh, appreciate uh, all that you're doing. I think you're definitely being used, and I know a lot of people are uh, are inspired by your, your bold stance and your willingness to uh, speak the truth into a world that is often... Um, filled with lies. So thank you for not only coming on the show, but thank you for your broader service to our province and our country. And uh, God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless you all. And God bless Ontario. Well, this has been another episode of Leadership Now. You can make sure to hear us weekly on the CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and 11 p.m. Thursdays, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Download their app from their website, flfnetwork.org, and make sure to listen there to not only the Leadership Now podcast, but a host of other great podcasts from like-minded people across North America. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Derek. And thank you to each who have tuned in. Make sure to tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.